All right, everyone, welcome back to the weekly roundup edition of On the Margin. I'm your co-host, Mike Ippolito. I am joined, as always, by my munificent co-host, Mr. Tyler Neville. What's going on, Tyler? Mike, round two. I got no jokes for you this week. Round two, I know, yeah. So this is actually round two. We've done this intro before. I can't lie to you all. I can't lie. Thank you. My guilt was getting to me. We had some technical problems on the first Uh, go-round. But you know what? We've had some practice, and now this is going to be... Even better. <laughs> even better. <laughs> yeah, we're going to mess it up even harder than we did uh, on the first go-round. Yeah. It's tough. It's tough to do that, but I think you and I, I think we're up to the challenge, actually. Um, Let's, go. Let's do it. Yeah, Here I we think go. we will. All right, man. Big, uh, big group of stories this week. We're going to be focusing a little bit more macro uh, than we have in the past because it's been a bit of a quiet week for crypto. Um, so we're going to be kicking things off with this uh, $453 billion reverse repo facility uh, that the Fed has implemented. Um, We're also going to be talking about China. Uh, Their crackdown has expanded beyond um, just cryptocurrency, and they're looking at financial products that are linked to commodities, which it seems might might actually be uh, what they are really after. Inflation worries uh, are ticking back up as PCE data has come out at 2.8%. That's above the expected 2.5%. And then finally, we're going to be talking about meme stocks. we're seeing the return of the meme stock uh, as of yesterday. Uh, that's uh, Thursday the 27th. AMC was up 35% in one day. Um, I thought we were done with that part of the simulation, but uh, it looks like the meme stocks are still still on the horizon. Still on yeah. the horizon. Yeah. They're volatile today. They're bouncing back and forth big time. But oh, really? Yeah, great right. time to sell vol. Yeah. Well, well, we'll get into all that later, but let's th- let's dive right into this first uh, topic. We're going to be talking about a plumbing issue, and that is this Fed reverse repo facility. Uh, again, record $453 billion in volume. So I'll, I'll just kind of give the, the kind of high level, and then Tyler, you can kind of dive in and explain what this is and why it matters. But basically, 46 participants on Wednesday parked a combined $450 billion at the overnight uh reverse repo facility in which counterparties like money market funds can place cash with the central bank. Even though the offering rate on that uh, facility is 0%, demand has been increasing as a flood of cash overwhelms US dollar funding markets. Basically, you know, what's what's being described here is that there's a glut uh, at the front end of essentially uh, treasury issuances, and that has been spurred by the central bank's ongoing asset purchase program, which is commonly referred to as quantitative easing. This relates to the interview that we did earlier this week with Stephen uh, Meter, um, as well as the drawdown of the Treasury's general account. Uh, basically, what folks are saying is that this recent round of government stimulus, uh, this time in the form of fiscal stimulus, has provided so much liquidity to the system that banks have no idea what to do. They need to park it at the Fed. Tyler, explain what is going on here. $450 billion is a big number. Why are all these banks parking their money at the Federal Reserve for 0% interest? Yeah, my read on this is very plebeian because everybody you talk to in this sounds like an expert, but no one knows what the hell the plumbing is all about besides maybe one or two people in the market. I, I mentioned that guy Zoltan Pozar uh, at Credit Suisse is like the only person I know that can explain this stuff. And even the Fed doesn't really know how it works you know, from the inside. But simplifying it, um, what what's happening is I think – If you're a fixed income investor and all you can invest in is fixed income, you are forced to shorter durations to park cash in. And there's only so many treasury bills outstanding. There's there's 4.5 trillion treasury bills outstanding. So 
once that gets maxed out, treasury yields kind of fall negative. And so what fixed income investors do if they want to go shorter durations, they park the money at the Fed in this, this repo facility and take zero rates instead. So it's a really weird dichotomy of what's going on. Um, the Fed could issue tre- more treasury bills so treasury bills don't go negative. That would probably be a short-term answer. But what the Treasury what, what Treasury is doing is terming out their debt, meaning they're issuing longer-term duration, so the yield curve steepens a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's sort of what's going on. And I think those people that are afraid of the convexity at the longer end of the curve, they're rushing into the shorter-duration assets just out of fear because you can lose your, your you know shirt on that uh, rising yield trade. So it's causing fear on the front end, but then you have these weird dichotomy that's happening in, in venture capital where the VC world's never raised more more capital ever. And so the spigots, it's just the problem is when you have these mandates of capital in certain asset classes, they have to go to, the, the, to, to their mandates and essentially all that cash that's parked in fixed income stays at 0%. And it will slowly fizzle out, I think. And it's usually very bullish for markets, equity markets, hopefully the digital asset market too, when that money flows out from getting 0%. Because they're really losing money in, in real terms because inflation's now ticking up as well. Yeah. I mean, we heard earlier this week from uh, Steve Meter, who basically described, if you didn't listen to that interview, it's really great, he goes into the, the mechanism of how quantitative easing actually works uh, and what its intended purposes are. And if you actually look up anything about quantitative easing as well, you can very clearly say, see this, that the intention of quantitative easing is to keep interest rates low and maintain a strong dollar. And when you think about the Fed's objectives, uh, they certainly want low interest rates, right, so that the U.S. Is, does not become financially um, insolvent. Um, and they also need to control the amount of liquidity that's in the system. So my heuristic is that when you see uh, you know, a, a repo facility, it means there's not enough liquidity. Reverse repo means that there's too much liquidity. And in this case, if there's too much liquidity, the problem is, is that these banks are going to move money into uh, short-term treasury securities, and they're going to push prices up of those securities and rates negative, which nobody really wants. So I think mm-hmm. the big question here, you know, first of all, is how much longer is quantitative easing as a program actually viable, right? At a certain point, $120 billion a month, you're running out of stuff to buy. And I will, I will say that the Fed, who was not even thinking about thinking about tapering, is now thinking about thinking. Isn't that so <laughs> funny? People love, to, people love to talk about crypto. It's so unstable. If Jerome Powell got up on TV and said, we're thinking about tapering, if he used one less level of abstraction, the markets would tank 20%. He has to say, thinking about, thinking about, wild. But anyway, they are now thinking about tapering. And I think that that's connected. I think that they're seeing that um, that this quantitative easing program just can't be, can't be executed into perpetuity. Yeah, and that begs the question, what happens to housing at that point? Because you've pushed up housing so much to the point where buyers are actually stepping away from the market now even though you know there's 40 billion a month like the leverage went all into housing because there was a dearth of supply and now like what happens when they they taper that you know prices have to drop and then you're in are you in def- deflation or were prices just overcooked you know that's that's a question 
Yeah. So I think this goes back, and we're going to talk about this when we talk about China, but there's this sort of skill on Charybdis type situation where the U.S. has to choose between deflation and falling asset prices, which it wants to avoid at all costs. But on the mm-hmm. other side of that, the trade-off that they're paying for is rising inflation and asset bubbles, right? So you, you kind of got to pick. It seems like the U.S., like countries before throughout history, have decided to err on the side of inflation and, uh, and asset bubbles. It's unclear at this point whether or not inflation is going to be permanent or transitory, uh, at least the, the kind of CPI and the PCE uh, upticks that we're seeing this past month. But I don't know. I think we're going to have to deal with asset bubbles. And, you know, a lot of the problems that you can trace back to right now is just the fact that banks aren't lending. Banks are just not lending. They would literally mm-hmm. rather park cash at the Federal Reserve, get 0% because they're just playing not to lose at this point, man. They're looking out into the economy and saying, none of this stuff is priced correctly. I do not know how to underwrite risk in an environment like this. And that is the big problem. And the Fed is essentially saying, please, please lend lend money into existence. We want money creation. And the banks are saying, nope, I'm good, actually. So I think that's the problem here. That's totally the problem. The mechanisms of lending are completely screwed up because right. the the average consumer has delevered. You know, they don't have that much debt anymore after 2008. And you know, this fiscal stuff has allowed them to pay down credit card bills, student loans. <clears throat> you know, th- those numbers are coming down and banks don't want to lend to them, which I really think is a function of banks just don't want to lend to your average person because they're far riskier than your institution who, and also make up the institutional money that you can lend gets to your bottom line a lot better than say making a million, hundred million loans to, to single family, you know, people. So it's just the institutionalization, the financialization of the economy all coming together. And there's not, there's not enough people who want to borrow a hundred million dollars you know, everyone, everyone wants to borrow 400,000 or, or whatever the hell it is. So that, that's sort of, you know, it's just the, the whole mechanism is messed up and it's creating hyperinflation in certain things, deflation, you know, or disinflation elsewhere. And at the end of the day, I think all that cash is going to have to go somewhere. And I think it's probably back into the equity market or probably in digital assets because they can't really raise the front end of the curve. Right. I think it also highlights another risk of uh, super low interest rate environments, which is just the misallocation of capital. And you have zombie companies walking around. Right. So the problem that you pointed out is exactly right. Not enough folks out there who want to borrow $100 million. Right. But now the folks, the small pile of folks who do want to borrow $100 million have essentially they've had money shoved down their throats to the point where they're completely laden with debt. And banks actually are looking at them and saying, I don't want to underwrite these loans anymore. Um, to the point where, you know, there was a, there was a great, you know, it's not the loans. They're still issuing debt to investors. That's the funny thing is that you can, as a high yield company, though, the, the spreads on like triple C rated companies, mm-hmm. people, pension funds want to buy that stuff. So they, they would rather have a shitty ass company with, with a great yield because then you fulfill your pension. Right. Right. But they don't want to finance Tyler Neville who wants to go buy a house, you know, that that's a lot of labor for not a huge return. So they get far better fees if they originate, you know, debt, not loans, but debt for these like zombie companies. So 
that's therein lies the the social divergence, right? That's a damn shame, by the way, Tyler. I would, yeah, I would have heated that, buddy. If I was in charge, no <laughs> yeah, I'm just saying my balance sheet's a lot smaller. But like, you know, part of what fueled the 2008 crisis was they were lending money out to actual people, right? And now you're lending money out to all these corporations, and now they can't fail, though. That's the thing because they have to keep employment, so you have to have to keep these zombie companies around. You know, I, I was speaking with Larry McDonald the other day, who's like a convertible bond expert. And he's like, the Fed's backstopped the debt markets where like no companies go out of business anymore. Like that used to happen a lot. And we almost flip flop with China because China's actually letting their companies default now. It's bizarro world. That is bizarre world. What What is that? What's the reason for that? I mean, is it is it basically just that the Fed wanted to not let the system crumble, right? And they saw, especially during COVID, that they needed to shore up the entire fixed income market. And if you're doing that, you kind of need to act across the entire spectrum. And so almost as like a byproduct of that or an externality, they couldn't let companies fail. Or is this just a decision to say, hey, uh, the stock market has become essentially the savings account uh, for the entire population of the US and that number needs to go up. Like what's what, what's actually the reason here? I, I don't know, probably a little bit of both, right? Yeah. You know, you you still have the people that believe in trickle down economics, where it's like, okay, you save the company and whatever. But I don't know if you do that long enough, you just have these zombie companies, and then you have this old oligarchy of people issuing debt to buy back their own stock when you know no one gets a raise, but they get paid out on their stock compensation. So there's got to be like a reset at some point, but maybe they're too far. Like. We'll get into GameStop and AMC later, but I think that's the side effect of all this is you shrunk the float for the entire, and like you said, the stock market becomes everybody's piggy bank. It's their retirement now that they can't save. Mm. You, know, you, you can't save money with the interest rates they're paying for retirement, so you have to go invest it. Mm. So the stock market can't really fall. It's a public utility. Mm. So just to like wrap it all back here, what, what do you think about this facility? There's obviously a lot of demand for it. There's too much liquidity sloshing around in the system, everyone's favorite yeah. phrase. Uh, is this actually a serious problem or do you think the Fed's actually just going to take care of this, sop up that liquidity and it'll all be fine? I don't think it's a serious problem. Like you're, you're talking about too much cash, right? Mm -hmm. If rates were to go like super, super negative on the front end, like they did in you know 2008. <clears throat> There's a great chart that this guy Brian Reynolds has, who I'm having on my podcast soon. It's the ratio of T-bills to public debt. And basically during 2008, uh, that ratio spiked because everyone got out of their you know super long-term bonds and went into the front end and it caused this like massive, you know, the breaking of the buck of the money market funds. And after that happened, it was super bullish as that ratio came down. Now we saw the same exact thing happen in 2020 is that ratio of bills skyrocketed as everyone went, you know, into the front end of the curve mm. and now it's coming down again, which is theoretically really bullish for risk assets. Um, and, and that's, I think that's, what's going to happen again is that money is really afraid to, it's like that fixed income money, and it will slowly find its way out into risk again. So as long as, and that's even in the light of the Fed taper too. Mm, absolutely. Well, 
all eyes on Jackson Hole, I guess. Uh, we'll have to yeah. see what uh, what Jerome does. Um, <laughs> all right, let's move on to this next story. So China has expanded their crackdown mandate beyond uh, crypto products to products linked to commodity futures. So uh, again, I'll give you kind of the uh, the details here, and then you can give me your take. Uh, so China banned the retail sale of financial product linked to commodity futures, according to Reuters. China's banking regulator has asked lenders to stop selling investment products linked to commodity futures to mom and pop buyers. Um, three people with knowledge of the matter told Reuters to curb investment losses amid volatile commodity prices. It has also asked lenders to completely unwind their existing book for these products, which they manufacture and sell to individual investors um, who are involved in and have been briefed on the decision. So. Basically, all of this comes in the wake of very heavily publicized news um, that you know three uh, self-regulated uh, organizations, SROs in China, reiterated this existing ban on Bitcoin, uh, and then they again kind of doubled down. Uh, there was a lot of speculation that perhaps this was a coordinated attack on Bitcoin. Certainly, it seems like the ban is actually being enforced, and a lot of mining and hash rate is actually migrating out of China. It would appear, based on this news, that this was not some attack on Bitcoin, but Bitcoin is being rumped, probably light, rightly so, in this bucket of commodities, uh, which China is just worried about in general. So, Tyler, what's your take on this kind of broader crackdown? Why is uh, China so concerned about uh, commodities? So, I think when you have commodity inflation over there, it really puts a pressure on the labor pool because you know they that that's the one the ones who paid the price, and when you right. have when you have the labor pool saying, hey, we need wage increases, that's a billion people basically saying we need wage in increases, which shrinks your margins, and that kills leverage, right? <clears throat> when you have shrinking margins and a levered economy, it's probably the worst thing ever. So they're trying to control the levers of inflation, commodity inflation, so that their labor pool doesn't go up in arms. <clears throat> and Bitcoin was labor's way. Bitcoin and gold have been Chinese the way Chinese labor have basically gotten out of the system so that they're not at the whims of the government. And I think Bitcoin specifically is a super, you know, scary tool because you can store it on a, a USB drive, right? And so Chinese people are like, okay, I can actually like conserve some wealth here and the government can print up as many dollars as they want. So shutting that down keeps their capital controls in, in place where money can't migrate out of China. And that's the most important thing that they need to, to maintain their system is that those capital controls. Um, so at first they keep the commodity controls on, then they keep capital controls on and they can kind of manage their debt problems. Um, so that's, I think that's really what's going on there. Uh, and, and we'll see if it really hurts Bitcoin longer term. I think it's like water finds its level. And like you said, it, this might actually help the longer term thesis because it will make things even more decentralized. We had a lot of miners in China. Maybe that comes to North America, other places. It gets, you know, more ESG mining like we saw um one river do a bitcoin carbon bitcoin etf those types of things will make the ecosystem i think the narrative grow even better yeah yeah absolutely well you know we had mike green uh, on the podcast a little while ago and his uh you know he has flagged the worry right essentially that bitcoins could be some kind of trojan horse essentially if a lot of the hash power lives in china 
uh, U.S. Uh, investors and the financial system becomes dependent, they could kind of pull the rug, uh, so to speak, and then we'd be in a lot of trouble. So I wonder, you know, if he's changed his opinion at all and thinks this should theoretically using that framework, this should be a positive, right? China is actively saying we don't want as much of the hash power here. Um, that could be some kind of psyop or something like that. I don't know. But either way, the hash power actually is moving outside of China should be good overall for the security of Bitcoin. But I think, you know, the interesting thing to understand about China as well is as much debt as we have, China is way more levered. They mm. are the most, I think, levered developed economy in the world. Uh, so but, as much as we worry about inflation, they are extremely worried about inflation, right? And and this is to get like, if you really get into real like geopolitical game theory and and who's talking to Biden about these giant fiscal stimulus things, maybe a weak dollar, US dollar, isn't that bad. Maybe that's, if you create real commodity inflation, it breaks China more than it breaks us. And... I think the guy who's like the secretary of, uh, of home on Homeland or defense, Jake Sullivan, he, he knows China inside and out. And this guy knows that inflation will break them. So a weak dollar is actually kind of really bad for China. It can cause that debt bubble to burst and we can use that weak dollar to rebuild America. So like, if that's the game plan that Biden's playing, you know, that's it's kind of fascinating to think about um, and and makes me kind of a backer of like all this spending in, in some ways. So mm. I don't know. But there it's 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 like a giant game of risk. Maybe I'm going too deep there on geopolitical nonsense. No, I, I don't think so. But like what would the response from China be? So let's say there's commodity inflation, China, the, the debt servicing cost of China is too high, they can't raise their interest rates, or they eventually kind of have to do to tamp down. And eventually, the result of that would be a currency devaluation, right? Like a pretty broad sweeping devaluation of their currency. Then what happens, right? Is that actually good for us? It obviously causes economic devastation over in China. But for us, then the Chinese currency got even weaker, right? So a lot of the progress that we made in terms of becoming more competitive on the world stage with our exports, it would be for not. I mean, how would that impact us? I guess is my question. Yeah, I guess if we just keep spending, does the U.S. dollar get stronger? I, I, I don't know. It's a race to the bottom in either case, right? And which makes digital assets in the longer term seem like a relatively better bet. Yeah. Um, but yeah, this is like you know game theory MIT guys. I'm just uh, I'm a lowly Boston College grad. <laughs> you are not lowly, my friend. You're munificent. That's what mm. I said at the outset here. You're munificent. Yeah, I need um, to look. That's the only one. I, I have to run to my thesaurus too. Uh, <laughs> all right. Speaking about inflation, let's talk about inflation domestically in the U.S. So GDP yep. core uh, PCE just came out um, at 2.8, which was slightly above uh, the expected 2.5%. Um, many economists believe that inflation is being pushed higher by temporary factors such as industries reopening following the pandemic shutdowns uh, last year. According to the Financial Times, analysts and investors will be alert for price rises that are broad enough to persuade the Federal Reserve, uh, which is the most influential central bank in the world, to roll back its crisis era monetary stimulus uh, basically earlier than it expects to. So I think the big question right now, you've heard Jerome Powell get up on uh, you know, CNN and 60 Minutes and all these various programs and say, all of this stuff, this inflation is going to be transitory. Um, the question is, I guess, do you agree with him? I don't. 
And what's what's so fascinating to me is like I listen to David Rosenberg talk about everything's disinflationary. You're seeing housing supplies going up. You know everything in the future is looking disinflationary. The bond market's not pricing in the inflation, really. But like every uh, incremental person I talk to that's in like any supply chain stuff is like we're raising prices. We get weekly price raising things each day, and like everyone in a service-based industry is saying, hey, I'm not going to jump off my unemployment benefits because I, I get, you know, I'm not getting paid enough. I have no benefits to go back into the workforce. So <laughs> I don't know. I think this is longer, this is longer term personally. Mm. Um, and, and also like, look at the, the TikTok investors. If you're really making that much money, like in the market, You've just arbed yourself out of a job, right? And then that's a constraint on, you know, the supply chain somewhere, right? Mm. You have someone with higher purchasing, you know, dollars to consume and not someone producing it. So I, I don't know. Mm. I think it's going to be here longer. All right. Let me take the other side of this okay. debate. Let me take let's the other go. side. All right. Let's go. Uh, mm. So here's what I think. I think that um, supply side inflation tends to be impermanent. Right. Uh, generally, like a lot of the factors that we're talking about here, like people across supply chain saying we're raising prices. Again, I've got a, a background in supply chain. Prices get raised all the time. Honestly, they get raised all the time. Now, when they mm -hmm. start to impact the end consumer, that's something because generally, like I mentioned to you before, actually commodity like raw material commodity inputs actually fluctuate as much as 100 percent. Rarely does the, the price change for the end consumer because they hate yeah. that. It's it's a game of leverage, right? It's basically hot potato. Somebody has to eat that cost across the entire supply chain. So when I hear people saying prices are rising in the supply chain, I'm like, yeah, they raise all the time, to be honest. If it sustain, sustainably pushes prices up, then maybe I'll rethink it, but I don't yeah. know. Um, so there's that. I, I also think just like when you look at the map, oh, there's also the, the benefits, right? The benefits, all that stuff is actually ending in September. So yes, we're artificially essentially constraining the labor pool, but all of like, all of these, uh, these benefits programs and stuff by the federal government, that's all ending in September. So that's impermanent. Uh, mm. and then the last thing that I would say is, just, is it though? Is it though? I guess that is the question. I guess yeah. that is the question. Yeah. They kicked it out. That would make, time. that might make me change my mind. Yeah. That might, cause there is mm -hmm. nothing so permanent as a temporary government program. Yeah. That's a good flag. Look at the politics, man. Like, it's now mainstream. Like, you have Fox News talking about, you know, the workers being left behind. You have CNN talking about it. it's bipartisan that this is now turning into an inequality problem rather than, yep. you know, Biden's infrastructure plan today says we're solving inequality. So you can't, I mean, like, okay, keep going. Sorry, I cut you off. But you, yes. no. But honestly, you're, you're, you're actually completely right. And I guess the way, like to your point about labor versus capital, I guess the way that you, you solve the problem of capital being able to move wherever in the world, but labor being constrained geographically is politics, is, is the political will to essentially enact regulation. It's probably going to suck because regulation doesn't tend to do a great job of uh, actually doing what they want it to do. But I think you're right. But the last point I'll, I'll say, and this is just, you know, this is your, your, uh, your rosy, um, you know, Lacey Hunt type argument which is that it's just really difficult to have inflation in an environment with this much debt. Debt is inherently deflationary uh, because, you know, I forget the, the statistic from Lacey Hunt, but it's something like at, at current, you know, debt to GDP levels, it's like 
30 cents on every dollar of GDP is going to paying down the debt, which is just mm. ludicrous. You know, that's just insane. And then if you consider demographics as well, the demographics in the U.S. don't look so hot. Where they definitely don't look hot is over in Asia. We've essentially subsumed their labor pool into our own, right? And if you look at from a demographic standpoint, it sucks over there. It sucks. It's so top-heavy. Uh, so mm. I guess just like bigger macro forces here, I, I don't know. It all still looks kind of deflationary to me. Um, yeah. Well, it, it will always look that way for the next 20 years, though, superficially, right? Until it, I, I think the de- that's the, the difference between the data and the politics. Right. Is, you know, you can look at all the data and it tells you that. But, like, if you feel the social narrative changing, I, I don't know. I, I'm kind of leaning that way. And I get all those arguments are very valid. Like, yeah. Well, means Here's- Here's a question for you. If you've been yeah. calling for inflation for the last 40 years and eventually it hits, do you get to say you were right? <laughs> no, not that long. <laughs> I don't think you're allowed to. I literally yeah. don't think you're allowed to. I'm sorry. Yeah. My timeline is like, I don't know, six months to a year if you don't you know, verify what you're – or quantify what you're saying because I don't know. Yeah. yeah. We'll see. Yeah. All right. Well, let's get let's get back to this last story, which is just kind of let's call it financial misfunction, the financial nihilism, whatever it is. But the meme stocks, which I thought we were done with, are actually back. So I'm looking at yesterday's data, but AMC closed at twenty five point six dollars. That's up thirty five percent on the day. GameStop, which I thought we were done with, again closed at two hundred and fifty four dollars over a five day period. That's up forty eight percent. Shorts apparently have already lost an estimated six point eight billion this year. Betting against these meme stocks, that does not include moves in the last week. So it's probably much higher than that now. Um, I don't know, man. What's your take on this? Why are these stocks doing this? I thought we were over this at this point. No, this is this is what I, I think books will be written on this. I'm not kidding. But, like, look at the top shareholders of AMC. It's Vanguard, BlackRock, Invesco, uh, Schwab. Yeah, SSG, basically all like passively managed funds that won't sell. Like they don't sell until they get outflows. This is what I talked about, I don't know, three or four months ago with what's going to happen to markets. When you have these mega organizations own everything and you shrink the float, all it takes is like incremental money coming in and it creates like these irrational movements. And if you can do that with derivatives on top, that's even crazier because you know none of this is fundamental we can if, if you think it's fundamental i'm sorry you need to check yourself into an insane assignment but it has way more to do with market structure oh, let's go and but like this will slowly make its way if these if these organizations grow any bigger then like the, the floats just shrink and shrink and shrink and it's all subsidized by the Fed and the fact that like you can issue debt, you take shares out of the float, the market structure becomes like way more sensitive and it'll just find its way. Like it's going to find its way into everything. If, if they don't like taper and get back to like some normal market, it's going to slowly, slowly find its way to every stock. And, and not only this, but this is what's even more fascinating. How do you, as a hedge fund, short stocks anymore? Have you seen the short interest? 
it's down at lows now because hedge funds are like, I can't short single stocks anymore. You get run over. It's, it's, we're ruining free markets. And that's sort of what, that's the byproduct of it. And like, I guess you could just say, all right, why don't I join in on this? And like, you know, I, I sold some deep out of the money puts on AMC today to take advantage of the volatility. Cause like vol spiked like insane amounts, like never before seen. And it's just, it's so wacky what's going on. I don't know what to make of it. What about you? Um, I don't know. I, you know, I, I feel bad. I haven't listened to this, uh, this interview yet with, um, Dimitri Kofinas and Grant Williams, but I kind of agree with this take of financial nihilism, nihilism, whatever, Yeah. uh, where, you know, I, I kind of go back to this thing that you and I have talked about the world, just kind of going long vol and saying, you know what? I don't care, man. I'm going to take a flyer. And I really kind of get it because, you know, sometimes you listen to, I listen to these interviews and talk about these guys and they're like, Hey, uh, this is what I'm doing in emerging markets. And you know, I could make 75% of my money. And it's kind of like, why are you doing that? Honestly, seriously, these things could go up 500%. If you're yeah. going to put a ticket at the lottery, you might as well get the best lottery. Why are you doing this shit lottery over here? You might as well like do this. And I kind of get it actually. I, I think, um, just like a lot of other things, you know, we're looking at the symptoms, not the root cause. And mm -hmm. I actually totally agree with you. I think there's a market structure thing going on here. I think this is the rise of mega corporations, big passives that are restricting the float, but there's a psychological element to what's going on here too. And you have retail people buying this stuff. And I, you know, I don't love these takes that are like these sob stories and people, blah, blah, blah. But like, it is true. You've got people putting all of their money into freaking AMC and GameStop. And I think it's kind of just sad. I think it's a little sad. I think it's just a, it's just a very physical manifestation and a reminder of how broken stuff is. And mm -hmm. it's just kind of a bummer to watch, I guess is my yeah. take. And the longer it goes on, you really do lose. Well, number one, if it reverses, all those people probably lose a lot, a lot yeah. more than they put in. And number two is if this keeps going, you're just going to suck in more and more people that are making way more return from investing than they would ever do from working. And, and therein lies like, yeah, you all those problem. things are crashing together at the same time. Like incentives of people figured out what happens when you, these mega institutions corner the float is like, you just, you find ways to dismantle that system. And, at some point, they'll have to like rein it in, I guess, or everyone will just be going long, yoloing calls in in GMC and AMC, deep out of the money calls and making millions of dollars. And like, I don't, I don't think that's good for society as a whole. No, you know that's that's sort of what happens. You, the the irony of this whole thing is, all these scalable mega institutions like Vanguard have put like lots of active managers out of business mm. just in the due diligence on stocks goes out the door and capital gets misallocated, you know, for years and years and years because they created a better on-ramp of a product. That's yeah. basically what you did. I don't like what happens if I don't want to invest in Facebook 
Like if I think Facebook's doing a bad thing for society, but my 401k forces me to invest in it, I'm like that that's like we've created incentives where you have to give your money to these people. And if you don't, you get beaten up by the inflation. And so it sucks. It just sucks what the game they've created and the incentives are all in line for just going along with that. Yeah. Should I get off my pedestal now? No, no, I enjoy it. <laughs> I enjoy it. I enjoy it. <laughs> no, I yeah. agree with you. I, I just think, uh, I don't know. I will say as well, it's kind of a bit of a, I, yeah, I, I stand by what I said. I think it's just a bummer. And it's kind of a bummer to see, I know we're talking about this and like we're the media, but it has been a bummer to see big mainstream uh, media companies kind of jump on this narrative and they pump it. And it's this whole system of engagement and, you know, there's this, there's this complex, right, around information. You, you know, you kind of saw it with Trump. I think, um, you know, all these, all these media companies, he was like the best thing that ever happened to CNN, right? Mm -hmm. You know, you kind of saw their viewership went down by half after he went out of office. And uh, so it's like, do they really not like him? Or is it yeah. just good for business? I don't know. And I don't know. I, I just think- the Howard Stern thing. Yeah. What, what price did you pay for society for those ratings, you know? Right. And that, that's where it's just like, there's no adults in the room at these, and I, Ben Hunt, I did an interview. It was my first interview for the podcast. I talked Man, to him. I can't like, wait. I can't wait to watch. And this. he was like, these, these people at these giant institutions are, they're, they're basically sociopaths. They're, they're highly functioning sociopaths. He called them. And mm. I kind of see where that is, is like, at some point, like enough is enough, right? right. Wouldn't you, like, hey, we're going to spin this off. We're going to do a different thing here. Let's spin off my companies. <laughs> like Warren Buffett does it great because he's like, you know what? I'm going to buy a, all sorts of different companies, make sure they're differentiated. You know, that's about so they don't pervert things. And I think we're at the point where like antitrust is going to come down hard here um, because, you know, what else, you know, if it goes any longer, we'll be North Korea, you know, that's where I think. And I headed. don't want that. I don't want that. Mm -hmm. I want my president to have a butthole. That's what I think. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's your best line. Best line so oh <laughs> God. All right. So I, I want to end this on a bit of optimism here because, you know, we like, we talk a lot about kind of the monetary system, how it's not necessarily serving folks anymore. I do want to actually plug something that we're doing later this year which is this great conference that we're doing up at Bretton Woods. For those of you who are unfamiliar with Bretton Woods, we've probably talked about it a number of times before, but that was where in 1944, you know, as, as the Second World War was coming to an end, you had all these leaders of nation states and they got together and they made this new monetary system, the Bretton Woods system uh, that placed gold at the center of everything and the US dollar at the, as the reserve currency. We're doing a conference up there, pretty exclusive, capped at 250 people, some pretty big heavy hitters that are attending right now to speak. And we're talking about, look, the monetary system that was outlined here has been broken for a long period of time. This stuff is not working anymore, and we need to find a better way, basically. But it's just cool, man. It's, this is like a passion project that we've been working on for a while. This is, uh, you know, I'm very the, the nerd yeah. in me. I'm just so, I'm so hyped up, uh, you know, to, to hear these people talk about it. Um, and it's just going to be kind of cool where it's like a historical callback. We're doing it at the, uh, at the original hotel. Yep. It could be a good thing. So, you know, awesome. we should make a note that when we're talking about this stuff, there's a lot of, there's a lot of reasons to be optimistic as well, I would say. 
And Absolutely. Yeah. It's good to point out the problems, but keep it optimistic, baby. Turn that frown up. There's lots down. of good stuff happening too. Believe I agree. Me. I agree. I, mean, I agree. They solved the, you know, was it? They solved like a lung cancer thing today, Amgen. Really? There was a drug that came out that helps lung cancer. That's that's a good thing. Why There's don't I know about that? Great English. Okay, that, that makes me feel better. All right, yeah, so we're great. solving some of the problems as we're yeah. creating more Alzheimer's. We're, we're we're getting some test drugs there coming down the pipe. It's good. Things are good. Things are good. Oh, good man. I yeah. I, I hope. <laughs> you know, uh, this is funny. I um I used to Jason and I have this joke together that I, I've lost a lot of money. Uh, chasing investments that Jason has recommended to me over the years. Um, <laughs> he's a marketing he's, guy. <laughs> he's a, I mean, look, he's an eternal optimist. It's actually great. It's an amazing strategy. Uh, it does yeah. lead to a couple losses along the way, though. There was this company I remember he recommended, like Neurotrope. They had this promising thing. You know, they were going to solve Alzheimer's. They'd already run up like 5X. He's like, you got to buy it. I was like, I'm going in. I'm buying it. Lost all my money on that. Oh, <laughs> Turns out they yeah. didn't do it. Those bio, uh, those biotech stocks are rough. I mean, I blame no one. This is completely my own fault. Um, yeah, that, yeah. I've got another one. I lost a bunch of money on Jerry Seinfeld tickets. Um, I don't even want to tell you the story uh, behind that. Did, I was, did you buy like a whole section of his show? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's, um, you know, Jason had this buddy. He basically built this business. You would, you know, there's basically like primary and secondary markets for concert tickets. And, <laughs> yeah. uh, you know, it, you know, you buy the major ones off of, you know, like straight from the source and then you can resell it at a profit later. Mm -hmm. And Jason's buddy was doing this, making all this money. You know, it's our first couple of years in New York. He's like, hey, man, I got this sure thing. I got this sure thing. It's this Jerry Seinfeld concert in Manitoba. You got to <laughs> scoop the tickets up. You in Manitoba. Scoop up Manitoba. Oh, you know, probably a smarter person would have asked, why Manitoba? Why Manitoba? <laughs> it's February. Are people really going to be psyched to see him in February? I did it with Beyonce, flipped it, you know, Madison Square Garden. Like, just make it easy on yourself. Well, yeah. I was going for the sure thing that I heard from this expert. So, you know, mm -hmm. bought like 800 bucks worth of Jerry Seinfeld uh, concert tickets in Manitoba. <laughs> Couldn't have resold when, a lot of When them. 800 bucks was a lot of money for you. There was a lot more money back then, yeah. And, uh, and I didn't resell any of them, nor did I go to the concert because, again, it was February in Manitoba, and I didn't go. I thought about going. And I was like, "This seems Brilliant. like it's not going to be great." So, yeah, yeah. What are you going to get? There's my, so there's my little. You learn. You learn from this. You, you live and you learn. You live and you learn. Um, yeah. All right. What are you up to this weekend, Tyler? Big plans. Tomorrow, I got a couple hours. Me and a, a couple buddies are going on a boat in Lake Austin, which is pretty dope for Memorial Day. So be uh enjoying some drinks on a beautiful boat 90 degree weather the bugs aren't that bad down here yet so oh my yeah. god that actually sounds really nice i well, yeah. I've, I've been down to austin once i did i did a boat on a river began with an l do you know what i'm talking about hmm could have not been an l i don't know it's a couple years ago i don't know they call was, the river lake austin Oh, really? Maybe it was that. I don't know. It, I went on a boat really for a day. It's a river that comes through. Yeah. And it's, it's freezing cold, and it's super hot here, so it's yeah. really a great combo. Beautiful. Really beautiful good. Spot. Yeah. What Austin, about you? What, I, what do I got going on? So I'm doing a, a staycation here in New York uh, this Ooh. weekend for Memorial Day. I had all these plans. It looks like it's going to rain the entire time. Um, you getting a mani-pedi? 
<laughs> Tyler, how did you know? How did you know? Uh, I was right at the top of my list. I mean, I yeah. got to do that first yeah. so I can go in feeling fresh uh, for the rest mm -hmm. of my activities, you know? Um, yeah, but I, it's like all the stuff I was planning on doing was, it was outdoors. So I'm not 100% sure what I'm going to do. Go to the movies. Speaking of AMC, uh, there's a great Jason Statham movie out. This is the second week in a row I've plugged Jason Statham. <laughs> <laughs> but it's about like uh let's see i forget what it's called but i am wrath or something really good very solid you really sold me on that description uh, the description <laughs> the detail of your description is what sold me i we have, we have this thing called alamo draft house do you have those up there yeah where you you sit in these reclining chairs and they like Bring you like pizza and beer and that's the direction that movie theaters are all going. It's They're incredible. all going. Yeah, it's great. It's great. Yeah, like a king. Yeah, Ooh. I know. Yeah, it's better than paying like twenty bucks to sit in like a you know an auditorium seat. You know, yeah, jam packed in. I, I'm okay paying a little more money if you get a nice experience. You know, I Absolutely. I want to be fed. I want to recline. Excellent. Love you. you know what? I'm gonna go buy some AMC stock right now. It's up. Uh, what? thousand percent in the past week oh my god dude. do it oh my <laughs> god all right um all right with that um i think this was another successful roundup we'll leave it there enjoy yeah. the drinks on the boat my friend i'm jealous thanks dude all see right. you next week Talk to you soon.